0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I learned about Ruby Namdar. Um, for many years, I have had a group of friends in Jerusalem, and we've been reading, uh, it seems like forever, the um, modern Hebrew literature of perhaps one of the great, greatest modern Hebrew writers, the Nobel laureate in literature, uh, S.Y. Agnon, uh, we've just been reading his corpus endlessly. And every time I go to Israel, I pick up where we are and we meet at a coffee house every Thursday morning for about two or three hours. And they've never departed from reading Agnon, except last summer. So I go there. And I said, where were we? Uh, we're sort of in the middle of uh, Agnon's great novel, uh, Only Yesterday. They said, oh no, we're not reading that anymore. We're reading this new guy. And it turned out to be Ruby Namdar and we were reading his uh, novel in, um, in Hebrew. And I fell in love with it right away. And it's really mysterious because here's this guy He's a Jerusalemite, born in Jerusalem. He told me he was born in Bikur Cholim Hospital, which is right in the center of Mea Shearim. His father was a very famous photographer of the ultra-Orthodox community. He grew up in my old neighborhood in Jerusalem, down the street from, on Aza Boulevard and Chernikovsky Street. Um, and um, so what is this guy from Jerusalem writing on Hebrew on American Jews and usually someone who is an outsider never gets it right but actually Ruby Namdar captured American Jewry in in I think extraordinary terms this is a book and, it, and it's it's an amazing book uh, one of my friends in the reading group said well I, I said what's it like and they said have you ever read Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain and I said yes Well, Namdar is like Thomas Mann, one of the great um, 20th century German novelists. So I decided that if I ever saw him in the United States and saw this book translated, I'd immediately rush to invite him to come to California and to UCSB. And so when his book was announced in translation, I contacted him. It's a book that should be of enormous interest to us as American Jews and non-Jews, because one of the things he captures so well is the immediacy of the sacred in every possible moment. And he wanted me to read just the opening paragraphs of this novel, which I hope you'll buy and get him to sign for you, because this is the kind of book that you uh, really should have in your library of modern uh, Jewish and Hebrew literature. And Mother's Day is coming up. You haven't gotten a present yet for mother? Tonight's the night. So let me just read the beginning of this novel, and you'll get a a sense of the extraordinary uh, prose of this speaker that we have tonight. So it begins this way. One clear morning on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Elul, the year 5760, counting from the creation of the world, which happened to fall on Wednesday, September 6, 2000. The gates of heaven were opened above the great city of New York, and behold, all seven celestial spheres were revealed right above The West uh, 4th Street subway station layered one on top of another like the rungs of a ladder reaching the skyward from the earth. Errant souls flitted there like shadows, one alone bright to the point of transparency, the figure of an ancient priest. His head wrapped in a linen turban and a golden firepan in his hand. No human eye beheld this, nor did anyone grasp the enormity of the moment—a time of grace in which not a prayer would have been have gone unanswered. No one but an old homeless man who lay on a bench, filthy and bloated with hunger, shrouded in his tatters, wishing himself dead—he passed the meat instantly without pain, a blissful smile lingered on his face, the smile of a reprobate, his penance completed, granted eternal rest. Ruby wanted me to read more, but I think I'd rather hear from him um, than read more. So I'd like to um, have you join me in welcoming really one of the great modern Hebrew novelists uh, working today, Ruby Namdar.
1: Thank you, thank you, Richard. Thank you all for coming. I want to first of all thank uh, you know the university and the Taubman Center for uh, bringing me here. I want to thank Richard for discovering the novel in such a, a wonderful uh, the the way you the way you told it is in itself a novelistic right uh, a movement. And uh, thank you all for taking the time and joining us. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. The novel that I am now you know, presenting to you has, a, has an interesting story. So in, in a way, there's a story behind the story. And I would like to speak to you about that story as, as well as the book itself. There's the personal story, and then there's a story of a culture and language, the Hebrew language. That is um, that the the novel celebrates, explores, and also challenges. And I would like to share with you uh, my thoughts about this, um, which I think might might be of interest for people who are interested in literature and culture. So my personal story begins—I mean, this step, this stage of it—begins 18 years ago. When I arrived in New York, um, it was in the winter of the year 2000, and I came to New York for all the right reasons. I came to New York to to follow an old love story that was rekindled. It started in Jerusalem, and it was a long and wonderful and, and dramatic, romantic saga. And, um, and when when we... Carolyn and I, who is now my wife and mother of my two daughters, and thankfully, because she's amazing, um, when, when we decided to give it a chance and test it out again to see if it's going to work, it was, I, I just came. I just was more adventurous and, and more of, I guess, of a gypsy. You know, I needed my laptop, a cup of coffee in the morning, you know, a glass of wine at night, and I could write. Um... And I came I came to New York with an adventurous spirit and an open heart. I wasn't young, but I was substantially younger. And I was just, just then finishing editing my first collection of short stories, which I published already while living in, in New York, a Hebrew collection that was never translated to English. So I found myself walking the streets of New York and taking it all in. And it was a combination of where I was in the world then, where I was in life, the emotional, emotionally open, emotionally adventurous, if you will, place that I was in my life, and the vastness of the New York experience and of the American experience. Now, I've been in New York before, but this time it was different because this time I was here to stay in ways. I mean, I didn't even know that I'm staying, but it was in the air, the possibility. So it was really a new beginning, the beginning of a journey. Things look different when you're a tourist. It is very different. Also, because Caroline's family is a long, it's, a, it's an old New York family. They've been living here there for generations. Um, I and she, her family and friends were not the usual people that I would meet as an Israeli immigrant if I moved and lived in Brooklyn and associated with, with, the, with the Israeli crowd. So in some way, I got, I got something that could be an, archeo- a, a, an anthropological gold mine, because I got, I got an in. And, and we're smiling because I, I discussed with Richard before the fact that I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an anthropology graduate. Uh, my, I was trained as an anthropologist, which to me, a good, a good anthropologist is also a good novelist. And a, and a good novel has to have some anthropological insight. I think that's an important thing. I got a glimpse of a world that would otherwise be close to me and it was so overwhelmingly different than everything i knew the world the world of the intellectual elite of new york with all its with all its a, a gl- gl- a, a glory and ridicule it's like it's it's an and and i the, the the absurdity of it at times the beauty of it at others the great sense of self-importance um the sense of infinite self-fascination that is New York, and everybody who's been in New York knows what I'm talking about. And all of this was very effective. Add to it the architectural statement and the, the dense ur- ur- urban situation. It is the opposite of what you have here in this wonderful part of the world. It is a place where nature almost does not exist. It is a place where culture has become a new nature. And this was fascinating for me as an author. Add to this the Jewish-American experience, which is something that in Israel we do not know a lot about. And there are reasons for that, and I would like to elaborate a little bit. You know, there is a certain interesting and unspoken dynamic between Israel and the the Jews of the world. Because we are one, and we're not one. It is the same culture, but it is not. As a matter of fact, there's a great divide separating us, which is the language barrier. You know, as an Israeli, you live in the Hebrew. I'm going to also have some things to say about the Hebrew as a... It's, not, it's more than a language. And there's also a big difference in the existential experience. When you live in, in, a, in a country that has a strong Jewish majority, your Jewishness in certain ways becomes transparent. When I came to New York, suddenly the idea of being a minority... And the, the existence, and it's a comfortable situation in New York. You know, we're not a, it, it's, a it's not, it's, it's a pretty easy place to be a minority in. But still, to be a minority, a different, very different experience. You see the world very differently when you're a minority and when you're in the majority. And all of this wonderful discovery endless details, endless fascination with those details, culminated into two years, more or less, after I came to New York, the, the first sentences of The Ruined House. The writing of this novel took me no less than 10 years, a whole decade of very hard work, at times excruciatingly hard work, at times euphorious wonderful work where it flowed at times really difficult efforts to break through the novel it is a very ambitious work it is not an easy easy little read and it wasn't an easy little write either there was a lot of a lot of work those of you who will read it you will will see that it has like a strong architectural element that you, you it's really built almost like, like a cathedral. And, and putting all the details in place was, was enormous amount of work and, and so on. And all of this without taking into, into account my own neuroses and, you know, writer's blocks and self-destructive forces that, you know, are part of, the, are part of who we are as artists. So many years of hard work. The novel written in New York and about New York was written in Hebrew. I was often asked why, to which I answered that there was really no other option for me. I could never reach the type of depth, linguistic and otherwise, with the work if I didn't write it in, in Hebrew. There, there are reasons to that that are not just because Hebrew is my, my native tongue and my command in it is, uh, is uh, very different than my command in English, even though I feel pretty comfortable in English, as you see. I don't live in translation, I don't constantly translate, but it is a different depth. Another thing about the Hebrew is that the Hebrew has a resonance that is different than other languages the roots of the hebrew are the bible and the and the hebrew has the also the famous root system that enab- which actually we we it we f- we modernize it in the under the influence of the arabs the arabs of andalus it is basically a modern hebrew as we know it was arabified in spain as 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 part of making it a, a, a modern language of the time, the root system and the biblical resonance make the Hebrew an amazing tool. Make the Hebrew, and if if you use it right, if you if, or if you if you are interested in this in reaching these places, when you write in Hebrew in literary Hebrew, you can enact so many historic and poetic levels of language that go all the way to Genesis, pass through the later books of the Bible, including the wonderful poetry of Psalms, the Song of Songs, uh, the the amazing language of the prophets, the epic language of Samuel and King, and then going through Mishnaic Hebrew, the Hebrew of the Brita that is parts of the Talmud, medieval Hebrew, rabbinic Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew of the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics, who, who believed that with word you can build and destroy worlds, the golden era of, of Muslim Spain, in which the Hebrew thrived to heights that it, it has yet to achieve again, going through the first attempts at modern Hebrew, The wonderful work of Shai Agnon, who is my my master and main influence, and it was amazing to hear that they were... If they stopped to read Agnon and took this novel on, that's all I I needed to come here to just hear that. That's fine. Um, And then the modern Hebrew canon. Also, another amazing source of the Hebrew is the prayer book, the Sidur and the Machzor. With the wonderful piu team, the religious hymns that are a part of the prayer books, with very rich, very rich tradition, linguistic and poetic tradition. So when you, when I write in Hebrew, the, I have I have access to all these many wonderful worlds, textual and linguistic worlds that, that it, it's, uh, it's amazingly rich. I sometimes like to talk about the Hebrew, it's, a, it's not a very Jewish metaphor, please forgive me, as a wonderful church organ, an enormous church organ in a big cathedral. You know, this amazing instrument that that builds on itself and builds on itself. And when I sat in New York and opened my laptop with the right-to-left keys and the stickers, you know, the Hebrew stickers on the English letters because it, it is not the language where, in which I live. I came to the writing already with this festive feeling of something big is happening. This is not the language of the everyday. The novel tells of the life of Andrew P. Cohen. Andrew Cohen is a very successful, very elegant, very sophisticated man in his early 50s, living in New York City, who is kind of living the cliche of the New York success story. He lives, uh, he, he has a wonderful job, he publishes in all the right places, he sits on all the right boards he is a, he, he writes he 's a very prolific writer uh, who who writes very easily. He always has his finger on the pulse of contemporary culture. he knows where the wind blows culturally. He is what we call ironically happily divorced, meaning that he managed to get out of a marriage with seemingly not making everyone his enemy and he has he maintains, he's proud of maintaining very amicable, amicable uh, relationships with his ex-wife, his daughters, he has a young girlfriend. The whole thing is, is really almost a caricature of the New York success story. But something happens to Andrew Cohen that he and the reader cannot really explain The novel follows a year in the life of this professor, in which he starts at at this place that's very secure, some would say smug, and the novel follows him and gets dangerously close to his mind, kind of the camera movement, and I use the word camera here knowingly, because there's a lot of cinema, I think, in this novel and a lot of cinematic influence on it, and and the work is somewhat cinematic. The, the, The camera moves closer and closer into the mind, and we see more and more the world through his mind that begins to be unraveled. All the structures of Professor Cohen's life begin to unravel. His mind begins to be undone. As this process proceeds, sorry, something I said, um, there's a, 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 the, it hastens this, this process of un, the undoing of Andrew Cohen. And as this happens, something very strange happens. He begins to see visions. He begins to see visions, fragments of dreams, fragments of sound, visuals, from an ancient shrine, from the desert, from some remote cultic work of ancient priests or shamans, he begins to see visions of the holy temple in Jerusalem, which is a very important symbol preserved in the amber of Jewish memory since the destruction. It's destruction by the, in the, hands, of, by the hands of the Romans in seven, the year 70 AD. A very important, traumatic, and formative moment in Jewish history. It is the moment, basically, where the Jews came out of history and started being leading this anomalous existence of belonging everywhere and not belonging anywhere, not really being defined as a religion or a nation, but this kind of uh, a a new and different thing. I, I like to think of it as being very much in history, but also very much outside of history. Something that modern Zionism was trying to fix, if you will. to to pin down Judaism as a normal national identity, pin it down to a territory and, and flatten this problematic existence. Andrew begins to see these visions. They are, at times, very alluring, very beautiful, very sweeping. At others, they are very scary. Sometimes there's something repulsive about them. There's blood. There's there are, uh, animals being slaughtered. People being slaughtered. At times, he, he begins to suspect that what he sees has a meaning that's connected to him personally, but he pushes it away. He does what we all, each and every one of us, would probably do when something so extraordinary happens he denies and this goes on this this unraveling and and the 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 gravity of the of the visions that becomes bigger and bigger harder and harder to bear on his poor mind and i'm not going to tell you what happens in yet there's another subplot in the in the book. This subplot, and maybe I'm gonna pass maybe I'm gonna pass this, and people could pass it around. I'm gonna open this in a page where this this Talmudic here, so you could pass it around and see what I'm talking about. There's a subplot in the novel, and it is not arranged on the page and told like a modern text as you know it. I'm passing this, and I put this flap in, so it could be like a wall. This subplot is arranged on the page. Is this good? You hear me? Good. Arranged on the page and told, not in modern language and not in modern layout. It is arranged on the page and told in a Talmudic fashion. The Talmud is the most important book of Jewish learning after the Bible. The Talmud is an enormous work um, that took centuries to be composed. It wasn't authored. It is rather a collection of rabbinic debates covering every aspect of life, It was authored, not authored, composed and edited in a few places, mostly in Mesopotamia, where Iraq and Syria are today. There was a second Talmud that was composed in parallel in Palestine called the Yerushalmi or the Palestinian Talmud. And this work took centuries to be collected, edited, and canonized. The, the Talmudic page, as we know it today, is not a regular page. It has a main block in the middle in which the Talmudic discourse takes place. The Talmudic discourse in itself is made of a few layers. So it's really, every time you look at a Talmudic page, you see the archaeology of language and identity and ideas. There are Hebrew bits that are really old. And then there's the body of the Talmudic text, which is Aramaic. Aramaic is a language that today is a dead language. But it used to be the English of the time. used to be an international language. The international language of the Babylonian Empire. So, the the, the sages whose debates are in the Talmud spoke Aramaic but referred to ancient Hebrew texts. And then, centuries later, commentators started offering commentary over the Talmudic text. And these commentaries were arranged at the side columns on the sides of the the page. And as the centuries advanced, a new layout was made up for the Talmud, which actually, and this is a less known fact, we stole from the Catholic religious books. This was the first Talmudim were printed in Italy, in the Venice press, and they were shaped after Catholic religious books that had this, this form already. They don't do it anymore. We are the only ones who now hold on to this form. I always find this wonderful because we love... We love to use the Talmudic page as a metaphor to, like, the the model of Jewish learning, but we actually borrowed it from the Catholics. So, what you have on a Talmudic page is you have the center story, the debate, and then around it, and this is amazing, you have commentators that could be from various parts of the world and in time. You could have a Spanish commentator from the 12th century and a Moroccan commentator from the 16th century, a Polish rabbi, and an Italian rabbi, uh, some uh, Rashi from from Provence in France, early Middle Ages, uh, middle Middle Ages, and so on. And they all converse on the page in a pretty equal way, creating this loud Jewish mess of a debate which is wonderful to me. So the Talmudic page really is a very exciting creation, graphically and intellectually. And the subplot does not happen now, but it happens in in the second temple in Jerusalem, in the Roman era, not very long before the destruction. And it is told not through a historic prism, but through an ahistoric prism. It is told through the mythological prism of the Talmud that discusses the temple. And th- there's something very wonderfully baffling about the way the Talmud speaks about the temple, because it can speak about it at the same time with great reverence, but also great irony. It could expose, it could speak about it as the holy place. At the same time, it can expose the corruption the human factor, you know, the fact that it has become, it was hijacked by the rich, by the powerful, by the, by the aristocracy of Jerusalem, different families competing with each other over prestige. All of this is woven into the Talmud in a way that really reminds me of New York literature, you know? So for me, the, 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 it was amazing to see how an ancient text about the holy city of Jerusalem can be so close in spirit to, to uh, a contemporary text about the uh, unholy, I think it's sacred, city of New York. So these two stories correspond with each other, but not directly. And I assumed that many of my readers will not brave these pages, or not at least in the beginning. And those of you who saw them will see why. And you will all see them by the time I'm finished. These pages are not easy because they challenge your idea of what a literary page looks like. Some people skip them. That's okay. Some people skip them and return to them. Some people delve into them. Of course, those who will delve into them will get more out of the novel. But I made sure that people who could not confront the Talmudic or four Talmudic, pseudo-Talmudic pages, will still be able to have a full reading experience of the novel because I knew that not all of my readers are going to are going to be able to do it. A word about the Hebrew and the fact that it's not it's not a mere language. Writing An ambitious novel in very literary Hebrew, not in Israel and not about Israel, is a very loaded statement. In some ways it is nothing short of subversive. Why am I saying that? Hebrew is not a regular language. Hebrew never considered itself to be a regular language. In the inner mythology of Hebrew, it is the language of creation. This is the language that God used in order to create the world. Those of you who who learned the first chapter of Genesis will know that the world was created with speech, according to the Bible. The world was spoken into being. The world is a word, the word of God we may still be living within a divine utterance. And according to the mythology of the language, this is the language with which the world was spoken into being. That's why the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics, but not just Jewish mystics, Christian mystics, Muslim mystics, learned Hebrew. They, They regarded it the language of creation. And they believed that utilizing the the language, certain letters, certain combinations of letters in it, could give them power to transform creation. Because if this is the language with which the world was created, this is the language with which you you can alter creation. So to begin with, the Hebrew was not a normal language, so to speak. It had a self-conception as, a, as, an, as, a, as, the, as the language of, of the divine. And then after the destruction of the temple, actually even before that, the Jews, most of the Jews stopped speaking Hebrew as an everyday language. They spoke the vernacular in the countries in which they lived, including the Jews who lived in Palestine that was ruled by this empire or that empire. So Hebrew became... A written language of the intellectual elite, a language of letters and it remained so for many, many generations, more than almost two millennia, almost 2000 years of a language that was a, a living language became 2D, you know, on the page, does not stand up from the page language of correspondence and then with, this, with the revival of Jewish, na- the national side of Judaism and Jewishness and the Zionist movement, the Hebrew language was brought alive, back to life as an everyday speaking and, and living language, as a live language. It was in my opinion, one of the most astonishing achievements of the Zionist movement—the revival of the Hebrew—suddenly you could speak, you could lead in every day, you could order your coffee or fight with someone in the in the line at the post office, which is something we Israelis do all the time—in the language of Genesis, in the language of uh, of uh, Yehuda Levi—it was amazing. So the language, again, became alive and well. But because it, it was asleep in the pages of a book for all these years, it remains, still, it probably will change, very close to biblical language. So when you really speak in Hebrew today, you can, you can trace the words you speak to the, to the Bible. You can really feel this continuity, which is incredible. But there's also another thing, that because speaking Hebrew is an act of, you know, returning to the land, so it seems like the Hebrew is a language with a very distinct direction, and a set of ideals, it is really an ideology, because to speak Hebrew is part of the Zionist project which is to recreate the, Jew, the, the Jewish nation-state on the Jewish historic homeland, which is the land of Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to call it. Israel, today, whatever you, are, you, you would like to refer to it. And that movement, ideological movement, towards the land, Haaretz, is an important part of the language. It is an important part of the language. Even for writers who are not very Zionist or very ideological, but it is in it's almost part of the language, this, this ideology. And when I write a book that uses this kind of English Hebrew in order to talk about America, American Jews, American, uh, to, do, to give homage to American Jewish literature, which I'm going to speak about in a minute, it, it undoes in ways the fiber of the Hebrew. And that's why when this book, and that was an amazing moment in my life, won the Sapir Prize, which is the the, the, the highest literary honor in Israel and like the equivalent of the National Book Award or the Booker Prize, uh, amazing moment. Uh, a few months later, the Sapir Prize committee, so shocked that this could have happened that an expat Israeli author living in New York would write a Hebrew novel that will win the Sapir Prize, decided to stop this and not allow this to happen again. Because it's too subversive, it's not, it's not right, so to speak, to use the Hebrew while you're not part of the Zionist project living in Israel and building it. It was a very hard moment for me personally, and a, a moment of great debate in the cultural world in Israel. I still hear echoes of it this morning, there were still debates about it. One of my big discoveries, and I'll speak for two more minutes and then we'll open it to questions. One, one of my big discoveries, wonderful discoveries coming to America, was of the great Jewish American authors. It was It was really a, a, a door open to a whole new world. Now, we have heard about some of the great Jewish American authors, but we have not they don't have the type of place, central place, in the literature and culture that they do here. Philip Roth, we heard about Portnoy's complaint, you know, Bellow here and there something, Malamud, a few short stories, but not, not at all, and not to mention Henry Roth, and not to mention other, Cynthia Ozick and other important writers, and there are many more that I'm not, that n- we just didn't know. There's a reason for that. There seems to be a certain rivalry between the Israeli Jewish literary establishment and the American Jewish literary establishment over what is the true authentic expression of Jewish culture. Because there is the Zionist interpretation, which most of the literature would refer to Zionist themes, and there's the Jewish American literature, which will speak about the Jewish-American experience and will speak about Jewishness often more than it will speak about Judaism. Right? It will speak about the, the life of, uh, of the Jews, the mind of the, of the contemporary Jew, not the theory or the religious aspects or the cultural aspects, but the life of it. And this wonderful discovery of this amazing literature, which I think is really amazing, um, I found in this novel a way to, to pay homage to, by referring to a few of the, of the more important voices. Lastly, I want to say something about the effort to capture, and then I'm going to ask Richard to read something. to, to uh, The effort to capture a new reality in a language that was not forged within this reality. The Hebrew, even though it was not only forged in in the desert and in the Middle East, is originally a Middle Eastern language. And therefore, it is suited to describe certain textures, landscapes, colors more than others. I'll just give you an example. There are a lot of greys. Okay, and I'm a very sensual writer. I write a lot about sensory, you know, colors, flavors, uh, uh, all things that have to do with the senses. Like to describe the the great variety of grays that the Northeast has. You have your own grays here. You need to really recreate a Hebrew. You need to look just, for example, slate. You know, material for you, slate. Yes, in a bathroom somewhere. We don't really have slate in the Middle East, it's not, it's not a material we build with. There's a beautiful word that describes it, tifra, but we don't really know what it is. So to try to capture all these new materials, new colors, use of blue, use of green and grey that are not part of if there is an original palette of a language. This was the most wonderful challenge. So while I was living in English my everyday reading in English, I stopped by the way reading in English when I caught myself dreaming in English one night. And I freaked out. Because if it infiltrates my unconscious and it starts appearing in my dreams, I will not be able to write in it. And then I moved away from reading a lot in English because I felt that I must protect that inner chamber of Hebrew. And it's not easy. It's not, it's not an easy struggle. Uh, before I open this to questions, I ask Richard to read a part that will give you a taste of what it is to write America in Hebrew that will then be translated to English again.
0: So this is a passage that Rudy suggested. Um, it goes as follows. The Atlantic's colors were so different from the Pacific's The Pacific was almost theatrically dramatic with its gigantic blue waves, its breathtaking cliffs, its sandy black beaches, its clear, celestially pure sapphire light. The Atlantic was more gently, more humanly shaded, ranging from blue to green and gray to dune yellow. The Pacific faced west, continuing the outward sweep of the continent toward the unknown. The Atlantic looked longingly back toward the old world, striving to bridge a widening cultural abyss. In his young, innocent, stormy California years, he had had a, passion, a passionate romance with the Pacific. The youthful, joyous potency of life, the freely available sex, the drugs, the contact with nature, the delight of self-discovery and self-love had all been colored with the Pacific's bright hues.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I would love to answer questions.
0: Okay, and remember that we have to use the microphone. So I'm going to pass it from uh, person to person. So Jeff Flint, um, you can start. Thank you,
2: sir. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. So, I have a question for you. I grew up in Brooklyn,
0: in Manhattan. Um, so, uh, when we would have Shabbat services on Saturday morning, we would read the Torah in Hebrew. And would you consider that experience um, Zionistic or American Jew?
1: I would call it an American-Jewish uh, experience, but how would, how did you experience it? Did, was it for you connected to Zionism? Was Zionism something, an entity in your world?
0: Yes, very much. Yeah. And so when
2: we would read it in Hebrew, it took on a whole different meaning.
1: Very interesting, yes. Of course, it, it could be. I mean, th- I, again, the Hebrew and the use of Hebrew is very loaded. It is more than just a language. It is not you know there are many wonderful languages in the world languages in the world the hebrew has always been from the very beginning of it a language that had more than one layer of meaning and it was it always was more than a language always an ideology and almost a mystical entity in its own thank you thank you please Could you say something about the translation? How can the translation in another language ever capture all the subtleties and meanings ah. that you pointed out are so important for yeah. the Yeah. Um, okay. Um, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, look, the translation, too, has a story within a story. I mean, there were a few translations of this novel. The people who liked it most informed me that it can never be translated. That's it. Um, And, of course, that was not an option not to translate it. The question is, who could translate it? Um, There were efforts to do it. Um, Sometimes they were too literal. And sometimes those who loved the Hebrew so much could not detach themselves from the Hebrew. So they were trying to emulate every twist and turn and and reference, biblical, mishnahic, uh, and, and it became a stilted, unnatural text that nobody would want to read. Um, it was a long and and uh, fiery courtship with Hillel Halkin, who's I think the world's the world's greatest Hebrew English translator, if you ask me, a, uh, an amazing master. Uh, he loved the book, but he was busy; was in the middle of other projects. It took it took some convincing. And when he took the project on, I knew that I could relax. And I'll tell you something interesting about how I knew that his translation is the one that has to be. I am too close with the original to actually be able to... I know if there's a wonderful translation or a really bad, but it's hard for me to be the judge. You need somebody with an English ear. And I would show samples to friends. And they would say, oh, that's nice. And that's not that's nice. That's not the only person, the only translation where people, people's faces changed, their tone of voice. Really, there was a visceral response to his work. There is a certain element of alchemy, almost magic, in translation. It is not a theory, in my opinion. There's a certain point if a translator reaches, which is really like similar to artistic writing, to to the writing of fiction, that if there's a certain point that you catch, you manage to render the the novel into another language, and I, as an author, don't feel a, a sense of loss. And that's amazing, given the fact that we knew that we have to part with many of the direct quotations because it just wouldn't fly in English. And yet, I feel that he just did it. And he's a very experienced and a world-celebrated translator. So today, I can assure you that if you're reading the English version, for example, the French version is coming out in September. I have no idea what they did there. I hope to God it's good. d Zero idea what I've done, but in the English, because I I do live in English, I know what I've done. I think he did a marvelous job. Really, it's amazing what he did there. Um, I've only
2: I'm only into it about thirty or forty pages, but um, it occurs to me that that what resonated for me when I started reading the book was Tony Kushner's Angels in America mm-hmm. which has these interruptions of the sacred, the angels come down yes. the, the, the Hebrew letter appears in the hospital so there's a, there's a way in which there's uh, for me the, the first 30 pages or so didn't seem un-American to me, it seemed rather that it was, that, that there were these uh, angels hovering over Manhattan, yes. very much in the way that in Tony Kushner's Play the angel comes down and and it's the angel of America, right? So there's, so there's, so there's. there's, I almost wanted to say that that in some ways the the novel reads like, uh, uh, you know the the American version of Judaism, which is Mormonism, right? There's just kind of Mormon Mm. sacred quality to it that that that, you know that has to do with the land, with history, with different kinds of of Hebrew. So I just wanted to say to know if you. I know Tony Kushner's work and if that had any influence in your text I, I,
1: I've I've heard that a lot I I wasn't here when the Tony Kushner work was at its peak so I I've, I've heard of it but I don't I haven't you know uh, seen or read uh, it directly I've seen glimpses but I've heard that so it's definitely apparently there the similarity and I think that you know there's, there's something about this the weaving of, of the holy and the profane, the, the weaving of the mythological and the, and the realistic, I feel that New York almost invites it. New York, in my, in my eyes, in my opinion, is a, is a modern, n- relatively new city that behaves and carries itself as an ancient city. It, it behaves like it has 2,000-year-old, 5,000-year-old roots. It's inviting mythology into it. That's why I'm so drawn to it. That's why I wrote about it. So I think that anyone who recognizes this is kind of my partner in, in crime, you know? We're, we're a secret cult of Thank you. New York mythologizers.
0: Another question? Um, I have a question then. I have several. Um, but, Shoot. Um, you know, you know, I really appreciate the argument that you're making about Hebrew and its ability to go back to the very beginnings of language, to the as you said, to the Book of Genesis. But there's a way in which, you know, your our mentor um, Agnon, for mm-hmm. example, has the ability to draw into the language things that are immediately reference points. Yes, I'm thinking of his short story, Maaseha'ez, Ma the Tale oh. of the Goat. <laughs> and um, because in the Tale of the Goat, um, there is this wonderful allusion to Joseph and what his brothers do to him and bringing the cloak that has been cut up and um, dipped, and in, dipped blood. in blood. Yes. And Agnon quotes, almost verbatim, the biblical text. And there you're reading a short story from... I believe the 1920s, if I recall correctly, maybe a little later, and all of a sudden, you're in the biblical text for three words, and then you're back to um, the ancient biblical text. So I didn't find that in your uh, novel, but what I thought you did so fantastically well, and it's in that first passage that you suggested I read at the beginning, is to make New York into a holy city. Yes. um, In which the heavens open up and there's this angelic force right above Manhattan, man. Yeah. Um, uh, Electrifying the place. Yes. Um, And it becomes a holy place. Yes. um, Through the uh, revelation of the divine. Yeah. On 53rd Street or someplace else. Yeah. And Um, and that's fantastic. Thank you. And this juxtaposition of the sacred with the grit, with the steel, with the cement, the glass whatever you have in New York that makes that place work um, is so powerful, it's the sacred and the profane, and the profane is becoming the sacred, and the sacred is becoming the profane uh, in this incredibly woven narrative uh, about your you know, hero who's unraveling
1: mm-hmm. yes, thank you you know i i found that my method is using small small references that serve as kind of hinges um, as opposed to large parts like you say about agnon i i like small hints that that are hooks on which you you on which you hang this relationship between the, the, the Bible, the Mishnah, and my work. So I, I, it's, that's a big difference between me and Agnon, yes.
0: And then you plunge us, like you know, this text that we're looking at, right, the Talmudic page, with all of the commentaries. And you may, in one of the interviews with you, you made some reference to that as a kind of way of surfacing different levels of memory.
1: Mm-hmm. And yes.
0: How does that work for you? I mean, how does the text surface these memories or yeah. levels of memory? You
1: know, it's it's. Thank you for bringing this up. I think that the la- language is kind of a mind. Language has its own subjectivity and it has layers of the mind. It's almost like there's a reptilian mind to a language and different layers. Or if you think about it as our personal memories, that the deep memories, that the current memories. And language is the, is the sum of these memories. And the same way that in my novel an ancient collective memory erupts in the everyday mind of an of a unsuspecting secular modern Jew, I find that if I give myself to the Hebrew and, and go with it, ancient layers just erupt in the middle of my work it's it's uh it's interesting how it ca- I mean I've studied it from young age and I've been very in love with Hebrew always so I was amazed myself at at how much of of it was stored in my mind of of ancient um, ancient Hebrew how much of it was stored in it even though I don't use it on an everyday level it's really as if different parts of the of the language's brain are activated through the act of writing. It's a very evocative act, writing.
0: Thank you very much. And don't forget Thank you. to purchase a book. He'll be at the table
1: and you. sign your copy. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.